Isaiah chapter 49, chapter 49, verses 14 to 16. Listen to a powerful, comforting reassurance of love that will never let you go. Anybody interested here in experiencing a love that will never, never let you go? Anybody? Do you want to be loved by a God like that? A God who will never let you go. Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 16. It says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. To which the Lord replies, Can a woman forget her suckling child? Can she be without compassion for the child of her womb? To be sure, these may forget, but I... I will not forget you. Behold, on the palms of my hands I have engraved you. Your walls are before me constantly. What an amazing passage of Scripture. And this has also caught my attention. And I want to explore what it means to be loved by a God who has a love that will never let you go. Now, in the context, understand the scripture, I always want to get the context of this thing. God has made various and many promises to his people, but they are so full of discouragement. Have you ever been there in your life? You know God is real, you know you love God, you know God loves you, you you know, you know, you know, you know, but in spite of all that you know, you get overwhelmed with discouragement. Any humans here tonight? They are so full of discouragement, and in spite of everything that they know to be a theoretically true, They just can't seem to believe. They just can't seem to put forth the effort to believe. That's where Israel is at. And their difficulty in this portion of Scripture is not a question about whether God is able to deliver them or able to get them out of their predicament. They know He can, but where they're struggling is, does He want to? Does He want to? How many know God is able to give us revival? Does He want to? We don't question His ability, but sometimes we get discouraged, so to the point where things seem to work against us, and it's and it's just a constant drive backwards at times. That we do we believe that He wants to? 
that's the background behind this particular promise that we just read. I want you to remember a few things about Israel about this time. I want you to remember their circumstances. I want you to remember that they are in exile in a place called Babylon. Not a nice place to be. They are in exile in a place called Babylon. I want us to remember why they're there and how they got there. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been ravished. And the people have been removed. I want us to remember why this happened to them. Because it says they are there, according to the prophets, for their continual rebellion, for their covenant-breaking habits, for turning their backs on God in spite of all of their privileges and all the blessings and all that God has done for them. Sometimes they just can't be bothered to do what is right. Turn their backs on God from generation to generation. And finally, they end up in this horrible exile in foreign country on foreign soil dominated by foreigners and the appearance is that God has just given up with his people. As we study through these passages in Isaiah, God has already demonstrated that he is able to turn history any which way he wants it to go. And there is no question that God is able to deliver his people from the grip of the mightiest power on earth. That is not in question. What the question is in the hearts of the people is not if he can do it, but the question is whether or not God wants to do it. Because as they thought back in their history, they're going to say this to themselves, isn't our sin that made us stink in his nostrils in his first place? How can we go back to an offended and a holy God? That's the depths of disillusionment and discouragement they're having in this particular chapter. Here is God's response to their despondency. Those scriptures we read are God's response to our discouragement. All right? Listen. Hear it loud. Yes. If you're taking notes, you spell that. Y-E-S. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. God wants to restore His people to Himself. Shout it. God wants to restore His people. Come on, it might get excited. God, in spite of all that terrible history we just heard, the heart of God is, I want to restore my people. That's a powerful truth. Wake up, old discouraged soul. God wants to move in power again. God wants to restore His people to Himself. Just because God saw fit that they needed to be disciplined, and how many know that God will carry out discipline? Just because God saw fit that they needed to be disciplined, don't call into question His love for you. 
God's love is not fickle, and God's love is not changeable. God is able to receive His people back from all over the world where they have been scattered, to restore them, to deliver them from their barrenness, and He yearns to do it. (laughs) Yes, God wants revival. Amen. This passage that we just read, and read it in the context of what's going on in Isaiah, this passage reveals the, at, at the heart of God's mission why He sends the, the servant of the Lord that we talked about this morning. Why He does it, because behind everything He does is this eternal love in His heart. And that love must express itself in redemption. That love demands that he forgive. And that love in his heart demands that everybody he disciplines, it compels him that he must restore those he has disciplined. He must do it. It's the driving passion of God's heart. He is love. No matter what you have gone through, He is love and His burden and His desire. No matter who you are and what you have been through and where you've gone, and even it's your own fault, He loves you and He wants to restore you to Himself. God can do no otherwise. I tell you, these chapters in Isaiah are thrilling stuff when you get into them. They really are. God's love is unfailing. He will have His people restored, and you will fulfill the purpose for which He called you. You will. Because He has a love that won't let you go. He loves you. In their disillusionment, they insisted that God had forgotten her. But in spite of how they felt, and in spite of what they saw with their natural eyes, we're going to see God kept their future in front of His eyes at all times. Israel may feel that her children were dead, and she may feel that her husband had forsaken her, and she may feel, for these reasons, my life is over. But God says something different than what your feelings will tell you. God makes the announcement in this chapter, I am going to bring your children back from all over the world, and if you will be put your trust in me, you will not be put to shame. And to these discouraged people, God wants to say this, that my love for you is strong enough to defeat every tyrant that holds you in cruel captivity. Do I want revival? Do I want to restore you to myself? Do I want to change world history? Do I want to change the situation? Do I want to change the atmosphere? Do I want to change your lives? The answer is yes. Hallelujah. I'll say it again. The answer is 
Yes. Smile at me or something. The answer is yes. Therefore, soul, get with the program. The answer is yes, in spite of it all. He loves me. He's committed to me. And he wants to restore all that has been lost. Let's understand a little bit of their complaint and their despondency. Because the captivity has gone on for so long, we're talking seven decades of captivity. We're talking into the second or maybe even a third generation by now of captivity. They have become extremely despondent. She says God has rejected us, and since God has rejected us, because that's what their feelings are telling them, because God has rejected us, what good are all His promises to us if He has forsaken us? How many times has anybody felt like that? Especially when you know it's your fault. Because Israel had to ask this question, all we after all we have done to betray our faithfulness to God and slipped up on our loyalty and got lazy about it and all the times we've broken the covenant with God how could God possibly still love us especially after this captivity Israel's faith is weak but I'll tell you Israel's faith is weak because it is not rooted in a knowledge of what God is like they are ignorant of God's character and therefore they say such things to themselves because they're ignorant of God's character. Alright? But it's not just Israel. Listen to the psalmist who goes through the same dilemma. Psalm 77 verses 7 to 9. Listen to the cry of somebody else who has the same type of cry. The psalmist cries out, Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will He ever again be favorable? Is His loving kindness gone forever? Has His promise failed? Has He forgotten to be kind to someone so undeserving? Has He slammed the door in anger on His love? Modern paraphrase of those verses. Is this a misunderstanding of God's character? Why would we even begin to think that God is forgetful? Have we ever been overwhelmed in times of dark affliction and sometimes we lose our sense of direction? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been there? Have we ever thought that God has forgotten how to be gracious? Sometimes people get engulfed in hopelessness. But here's the question. Have you ever been held captive by the failures of the past? And because you have failed in the past, you have assigned yourself to uselessness as far as God's will is concerned. God can't use me. Look what I did. They've assigned themselves to uselessness because of failures in their past. Do we sometimes think that God has to pass over us and use somebody else because we've blown it due to our own stupidity at times maybe? What are the prospects of our future? Considering our past sinfulness, is there any hope that we'll ever be used of God in any meaningful way? That is where Israel is. Because Israel was called to be a light to the world. 
called to be a light to the nations. Through their testimony, all the nations of the world were supposed to know about their mighty God, but they had blown it. And since they had blown it such big time, will God ever use us again? I want you to hear the answer. Yes! I'm going to have to sit down and shout amen or something here. The answer is, yes, God will restore you and God will use you and you will fulfill those burdens that He has placed on your life no matter what you have done to complicate the issue. That, my friend, is good news. So here's their complaint. So how is God going to respond to their complaint? Those verses that we just read are answering that exact despondent, desperate complaint that they have got. So how does God respond to this despondency? To this. To answer, God calls attention to something He has planted intuitively deep in nature. And if God has planted this deep in nature, that means he knows something about this. In particular, he's going to give this picture of a new mother with a newborn baby at her breast. That's the picture that he is giving here. And he says about this mother with this newborn child that God has worked a unique trait A secret spring, as it were, into the heart of every mother. The attachment of a mother to her child is completely indescribable, and men, we probably don't get it. And all the ladies are smiling at the moment. And men, we don't get it. There is a bond there that only a mother can understand. The attachment to her child is indescribable. That newborn babe is utterly helpless and fully, absolutely dependent upon the mother for its very existence. That mother has carried that child within her womb. That child lived within her womb only because the mother shared her life with that baby. That baby lives by the life of the mother all the time that it's in the womb. It can't exist any other way. There is a bond that's taking place there. And when that child is born, it still lives because it has to receive its food from that mother. Its existence depends upon that mother. And the faintest cry of a baby will cause in a mother a sense of anxiety who must respond even when it demands inconvenience and sacrifice. She must respond. God has put that into the DNA of motherhood. But the question God's asking is this. Who put that into the mother? Who made that the instinct of a mother who has carried a child within her womb? That causes great compassion and tenderness, and close affection, and, and keeping that baby warm and feeding it after it has been brought to the birth. Who put that in mothers? 
Where did it come from? This strong love of a mother for her children cannot even be defeated by the trials her children go through. How many know your kids get messed up at times? Big time. Messed up at times. But no matter how messed up your kids can get at times, you will always be their mother. Tempted to disown them, maybe. (laughs) But you will always be their mother. Your love is not defeated by the trials they bring on themselves. You still love them. No matter what her children do, no matter what trouble they get into, her heart will always be bound up in her children. Who put that instinct into mothers? Where does that instinct come from? Have you ever witnessed what you thought was a bird, a timid bird, but when it sees that her nest is threatened, have you ever seen that timid bird go into warrior mode? What is in that instinct of a mother bird that causes to go into warrior mode if her nest is threatened. Have you ever witnessed a hen gathering its chicks if there is a storm gathering? Have you ever seen them hide under her wings? Have you ever seen that? Who put that into the mother hen? Who put it there? Have you ever seen, probably not because you don't live up in the high mountains, but have you ever seen a mother eagle go ballistic when somebody's threatened her nest? Have you heard her screams? Have you seen how she can beat something with her wings when her nest is threatened? Have you ever observed the fierce anger of a mother bear robbed of her cubs? You don't want to touch her. Have you ever heard the roar of a lioness if she ever has been bereaved of her cubs and how she lashes her tail without stopping and she makes the mountains ring with her howls. Ever heard it? That is in mothers. God has put that instinct in mothers. Now here's the question God wants to ask. If I have put that into the DNA of motherhood, what do you think? Where do you think it came from? What do you think is in my heart? What do you think is in my heart? Now because human nature is fallen, even this very powerful picture that the Lord wants us to hear, it falls short because, unfortunately, because of the fallen nature, some mothers do give up on their children. And they fail in this picture of motherhood. But I have news for you. God, who put that instinct into the heart of every mother, is not subject to being fallen. 
Therefore, he's not going to fail in this instinct. Our God has never fallen. I'm going to say it again. Our God has never fallen. So this instinct that is in his heart, that he's put into the mother of every living thing, is perfect because in life, human beings and the animal kingdom, it all fails because of the fallenness of sin. Sometimes we see it strong in some and not so strong in others. But God is not fallen. And since God is unfallen and has none of these shortcomings, then what can you and I say about the instinctive love that rules God's heart? If we can see it that powerful in an imperfect creation that has fallen, please tell me what his heart is like. Tell me what his heart is like. Listen carefully. It is absolutely impossible for God to give up on His people. It is absolutely impossible for God to give up on His people. You should shout or something. Absolutely impossible for God to give up on His people. God does not and God cannot forget you. It is contrary to the DNA of who He is to forget. God's uninterrupted and undying love far surpasses the most noble manifestation of human love in fallen beings. Have we got the picture? Are we hearing the prophet Isaiah? Are we hearing God speak to the depths of despondency we let ourselves get in at times? Let's remember who he is. Now, wait a sec. He's going to develop this thought even more. He develops this thought even more when he says God is is more than the perfect lover. Listen to this. God is an obsessive lover. Obsessive. You know what that word means? O-T-T, over the top. Uh, He's an obsessive lover. Because he says this, I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. Some people won't like the title of this message, but God got himself a tattoo. Told you you wouldn't like that title. God has got himself a tattoo. And you know what he's done? He's tattooed a picture of you on the palms of his hands. I want you to figure out how many times in a day you notice your hands. How many times a day do you think you actually notice your hands? Take a guess. I have no idea either. (laughs) I have no idea either. But I know it's continuous and never-ending and it's constant. Unless you lost your hands or something, you notice them every day. You work with them. Listen, God has engraved you onto the very skin. I'll tell you what He has not done. He has not carved His initials and your initials on a tree somewhere. You know, the young couples get in love and they want to advertise they're in love and they go to a tree and it's, 
ES plus DB. That's the two of us, you see. Before she became DS. You know? I mean, ES and DB. God did not just carve that on a tree for somebody to walk by and say, I wonder who, who that means. Two people are in love, you know? God hasn't just carved his initials and your initials on a tree somewhere. Or you've probably seen this, where over these highways and these bridges, people get paint brushes and they paint all sorts of stuff on the, on the bridges. And God hasn't just put ES and DB on the bridge either. We might say, well, who painted that there? And who's trying to advertise this for the world to see? You know, God hasn't done that. I want to tell you what He has done. <laughs> he hasn't even just taken a photograph and put it on His desk. You know, every time I see the photograph, I remember. He hasn't even done that. What He has done, now to engrave, is different than just writing a note. To engrave means you have to cut it right into the rock. It's not just writing on a piece of paper. He has not just taken a pen and written on his hand. It says he has engraved it, chiseled it into his being, engraved it into the palm of his hand. It, it was cut. God, I want you to know, he hasn't even done that in one hand. If you read the scripture, you happen to be in both of his hands. On both of your hands. No matter what hand he's looking at, he sees you. That's amazing, church. He sees you, no matter what hand he's written. You're written onto both of his hands. God cannot look at his hands and not be reminded of you. Now, that's a word of comfort if you're thinking it's any different. God cannot look at his hands without being reminded of you. So listen to this. God always remembers me. I am always visible to God. It is impossible for me not to come before his eyes. Do you ever get discouraged? I got news for you. It is impossible for you to never be in front of his eyes. When he wakes up in the morning, if God ever wakes up in the morning, he sees you. When he takes a walk, if he does those kinds of things, he sees you. Every time he works with his hands, he sees you. He has not just written, he has engraved it onto the palms of his hands. It's impossible for you not to be depicted before him. Are you hearing the power of this prophetic word to his people here? This is powerful stuff. But I want you to notice this. But this picture, it says, your walls are ever before me. So in this picture, there's, there's walls that he built. What's that all about? Well, you know when they went into captivity, you know what happened to the walls of the city of Jerusalem? They were destroyed. They were flattened. God hasn't got a picture of your destruction on his hands. What God has on his hands is a picture of your restoration. He sees this picture of the walls built. And you're thinking you're living in ruin, but God's picture of you is finished product. All 
always in front of him. The finished product is always in front of them, and he's engraved in his hands so he'll never forget. Not that he would, but to help you and I understand that he doesn't forget. That is what he has done. It's a vision of your future. In other words, God has seen fit that you're always before him. And he is constantly reminded of his vision for your life and the future he intends to take you to. Listen to this very carefully. God concentrates his thoughts on you. What do you think? God concentrates his thoughts on you. He's focused on you. Totally focused on you. He has concentrated his thoughts on you. No matter what your past has been, no matter how you have failed, God's heart and God's mind and God's thoughts are focused on you and the future He has for you. I'll say it again. God wants revival. He wants it. He wants it. He wants it. No wonder He could say, like in another place of Scripture, Jeremiah, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not evil, to give you a future and hope. And listen to what the psalmist learned to say when he got discouraged. Psalm 40 in verse 17. He learned to say, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord thinks on me. I like that. I'm poor and needy, but the Lord thinks on me. If you've got that in your heart and your spirit, no matter where you are, the Lord thinks on you. Ah, that's good. Whatever your need is, I want you to remember, God's got you engraved from the palms of His hands, a vision of your completed purpose. Let me bring this to a close. Do we doubt God's ability to deliver? Well, as believers, no, not really. We know He can do anything. Do we doubt His ability to perform His Word? Well, you wouldn't be in church tonight if you did doubt it. You just wouldn't bother do you his, uh, doubt his ability to do anything he wants? No, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Of course you, you, you really believe that. But do us doubt about God's willingness to do it for you and me. Now we struggle. Now we struggle. Because we carry the sense of unworthiness. Hey, so what? Yeah, we are unworthy. But God's performance is not based upon my ability to earn it. It's based on the fact that he's got this instinct in his heart that he can never forget. And he loves. And he yearns for restoration. That happens to be his nature. Have any of us ever disqualified ourselves of our future usefulness because of our past mistakes? God can't use me. Look what I did. Does God want to use you? Yes. Does God want revival? Yes. Does God want to restore you? Yes. 
God's nature is it cannot be or do otherwise. So at the beginning, I asked you some things I want you to remember about where Israel was. But now I want you to remember some things as I close here. I want you to remember the power of God's love you, God's love to redeem you from your past. I want you to remember that God's love is greater than the most faithful and tender mother you've ever met. I want you to remember that God has engraved you on the palms of his hands for him to see constantly, and he's arranged it so that you know it is impossible for him to forget you. Not that he needs reminders, but to help you and I to understand that, the picture he has drawn. I want you to remember that God's love makes it impossible for him to forget your future and the promise he has for you. Lots of verses in the New Testament, I'll just quote them for you. I want you to remember God's great love with which he loved us. I want us to remember that God's love for us is shown by the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. I want you to remember that scripture in the Gospel of John talking about Jesus says, having loved them, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I want you to remember this scripture that God so loved the world that he gave. I want you to remember that God wishes that we would be able, by the power of the Spirit of God, that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. And one thing I'd like you to remember, I'd like you to remember that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. None of it shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not possible. I want you to remember that John the Beloved said, you want to know about God? He simply said it. God is love. This is our God. That's your future. Yes, he has power, but he's got more than power. He's got a passion for you and a love that will just not let go. And he's done things that bind himself to you so that everything he's ever spoken to you about in your life, no matter how much you may have blown it in your own life, he intends on restoring you, bringing it all to pass. He wants revival. This is God's answer to the despondent people in the book of Isaiah.